All right, welcome to Single Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a uh, writer and a podcaster. My other gigs are Blocked and Reported, which I co-host with Katie Herzog. Uh, we just recorded our latest episode today. Uh, I think it's a good one. You should check it out, blockedandreported.org. I also have a newsletter at jessiesingle.substack.com that this is the um, the cousin of, or maybe the, the brother, the sister, second cousin, some sort of relationship. Uh, I'm mostly just going to take your questions today. I wanted to talk a little bit about Elon Musk. Uh, let me pull up the actual tweet. But he basically – sorry, I should have had this ready to go. And yeah, feel free to jump in the queue. I'll get to the queue shortly. Um, Elon Musk announced that in the past I voted Democrat because they were mostly the kindest party, but they have become the party of division and hate, so I can no longer support them and will vote Republican. Now watch their dirty tricks campaign dirty tricks campaign against me unfold. Um, I mean, the, to me, the obvious sort of response to this is that Saying you are uh, – the Democrats were the party of kindness and unity, but they're not anymore. So you're going to switch to the current incarnation of the Republican Party is, is pretty silly just because I don't think the people who currently control the reins of the Republican Party are much interested in unity and kindness. Uh, I think there's obviously been an ugly turn, especially toward Trump. I mean I have a lot of political and policy disagreements with the Republican Party. If you told me you know, the um, – Mitt Romney Republican Party was about kindness and unity. Yeah, whatever. I don't, I don't think Mitt Romney is, is the worst guy, even if I have disagreements with him. But I think the party as it currently stands is just so nasty and conspiratorial and ugly and uh, often just uh, in many ways racist. Not every Republican's racist, but I think Trump stokes like the absolute worst qualities in the Republican base. So I thought it was just pretty nuts and myopic to say that uh, you're concerned about the lack of kindness and unity among Dems, so you're going to become a Republican. But the broader thing going on here uh, is pretty human, and I've seen it a lot because I have written about sort of cancellations, for lack of a better word, and I've been the subject of some controversy. Um, when people on the right get mad at me, it can be annoying, it can be stressful, it can be anxiety-producing, but it just doesn't really affect me psychologically because it's not my tribe, like it's not who I hang out with, it's not who I work for, unless I sort of, back when I worked for you know a publication, unless I screwed up in a big way, right-wing complaints wouldn't have any bearing on my job or my, my path forward career-wise. So it's like, it's pretty ignorable when it's people on your side who are going after you, it has like a really different and unique psychological effect. Like when you sense your tribe is turning on you, it sort of feels like the walls are closing in and you get, it can have this like be this weirdly potent feeling, even when it's just Twitter bullshit, uh, because you know that your standing in your own group matters a great deal. I mean, this is, I think pretty deep seated and, and evolutionarily ingrained stuff just because we're uh, a species of, of tribes and groups. So I've definitely seen this thing where someone will get sort of piled on by the left for the first time or for the most intense time uh, or in the most intense manner. And they'll decide like, well, I'm done with this. I don't want to be part of the left anymore. And I, I do think that's pretty myopic. I think it's understandable, but I don't think we should choose our political affiliations based on like who's been nicest to us in the last 10 minutes. And I made this 
point to Katie on the podcast we recorded today, but you know, if Elon Musk really wants to test the boundaries of Republican niceness, he should uh, tweet more about immigrants like himself and whether immigration is good. And he should tweet more about how Donald Trump actually lost the election because the stuff going on on the right, I mean, they have their own very potent form of cancel culture, mostly centered around anyone who criticizes Trump or who deviates against like the present orthodoxy on things like immigration. So I think I wish people... I feel like we need to like better train people in the public eye for how to deal with becoming controversial. Like in much the same way we need to train companies and other organizations to ignore online pylons. We need to train powerful people who might be the subject of those pylons to not overreact to them. I sort of think Musk is making a fool of himself uh, and that it just reflects a lack of a certain political intelligence because it seems unlikely that because people are being mean to him on Twitter or because he thinks the – journalistic coverage from the left has been unfair, which it often has, that he's now going to embrace an entirely different set of policies. Uh, so I just, I don't really get that. Um, yeah, but I, I think it's a pretty common thing. I've seen some really bad examples of people absolutely losing their minds and just sliding down this this slippery slope to like crazy, you know, COVID denialism and, and other really ugly political stuff just because they felt personally affronted by how they were treated by people on Twitter or whatever. So it's a thing that happens. Chewy, what is up? Hey, Jesse. I mean, I think the first thing I would say about Elon Musk is that he is just like pure id. Uh, that's he's like, very Trumpy on Twitter. It reminds me like so much of Trump. Just the way he's just wor- tweet- <laughs> posting through it, working this stuff out online. Yeah. When there was this thing also, I mean, there's this, I don't know if you think it's too conspiratorial. There was a thing going around about like how actually the the thing you posted that you were just talking about came just like hours or very shortly after a reporter had contacted him about this um, uh, scandal that was going to come out or this accusation that he had um, exposed himself. I don't know if you saw that. Like exposed himself this was, to yeah, a, Katie told me about it. Yeah. It was an insider piece saying he had exposed himself to someone, I believe, on a plane and offered to buy them a horse. Do I have that right? <laughs> it's something like that. Well, and like yeah. he had been contacted by a journalist just like uh, to, for comment about it, um, just like hour or two or something like that before he then posted that thing about let the, the smears come as they may, you know, kind of thing, which I don't know. It seems real, real, real coincidental, but um I actually had a different question, which is, sure, you may not have any additional like thing to say about it, but do you have any any comment or any anything else to say about the the uh, the case of um, Joshua Katz, who apparently is now being uh, fired by Princeton, who you guys covered? Like, I don't know if you had anything additional to say about that. Now that that's like looks like he's getting fired. Yeah, I think it's really bad. I haven't decided if I'm going to write about it yet, but my sense is. Um, the worst thing he well there is a a um, short version former investigation of some sort of inappropriate relationship with a female student I don't think like coercion or rape were involved and I think he was let off they he was investigated in 2018 or so maybe a year long suspension do I have that right do you remember this is easy I think up. that's right yeah that's yeah. that's 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 right and then he 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 wrote some stuff sort of in opposition to like the the reckoning and he referred to a group of radical princeton students who i think had occupied a building as terrorists um they were sort of black lives matter affiliated or offshoot and princeton uh despite the fact that he is a tenured professor uh and should therefore have very robust uh speech free speech rights 
President Icegruber, Christopher Icegruber, is apparently poised to fire him. I don't know if it's happened yet. This was um, Aaron Sabarium, I think that's how you pronounce his name, in uh, um, Free Beacon, Washington Free Beacon. So it seems like a really severe case of an administration caving to campus activists. I Now, is it smart for a professor to call activists terrorists? It is not smart, but that's a separate question from whether – you know, uh, you should basically revoke some, revoke someone's tenure and fire them over it, which I think is just crazy. This is really because he expressed like conservative opinions on the reckoning. I think, right? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, and the funny thing, so I was reading the New York Times yesterday an article about this, and it was funny because the reporter like wrote point blank, um, "This firing was not about free speech." Like, like teed up the controversy and then just put in their point like this firing was not about free speech in a new um, in a new, in a news story like, not an opinion column in a new yeah no in a, in the news story like wasn't even an opinion column it was like in the news story that's crazy it was, it was just bad i was like that's that's not that's not great reporting right there i mean it's obviously about free speech because tenure is connected to free yeah. speech uh yeah I mean, I, yeah, the, the free speech discourse is so stupid because, like, well, his First Amendment wasn't violated, but obviously our ideas of what, what free speech should include go beyond that and go to questions of norms and academic freedom and stuff. Anyway, I, my, uh, as far as I know, this is a pretty ridiculous instance of, um, you know, it's just a politicized uh, attempt to get rid of the guy because he said something campus activists didn't like. I think it reflects incredibly poorly on Princeton, so I'm not happy about that. All right. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks, Joey. Kennedy, what is up? Hey, Jesse, what's going on? How's it going? I'm right, man. Um, I, I just wanted to, at this point, is is it uh, Ilan just feeding into the people that already sort of hated him and saw him as some right wing <laughs> Nazi type person? They, they, they could just point to his Twitter feed now and just be like, "See, we told you he's already, you know, you know, he's talking about um leaving the Democratic Party and going to Republican. He's just, he's just, he's just giving them." A content at this point to just to just be like, see, we we told you, we told you who he was, and you know, you you guys didn't listen or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think he's he's giving them a lot of easy ammunition. I think he clearly doesn't care, and he clearly doesn't have anyone able to pull them away from Twitter. I mean, it's similar to Trump, where Trump would just like tweet his every last thought, even if it was like about ongoing negotiations with some other country over a tense issue. It's just it's very bizarre to watch because it's so different from the way you're supposed to conduct your business. And it's so obviously a bad idea to just keep posting and posting and posting. But I think he just has so much money and such an inflated sense of his own tactical prowess that uh, nothing will slow him down. It'll provide us a lot more entertainment at least. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like, yeah, it seems to me like he's just, he's working things out in real time and Twitter might not be the best place to do that with the, some some opinions that you have but what i wanted to ask was that um have you got any sense on what uh, the research actually says about whether political advertising in particular is very effective i know i've seen some people sort of express skepticism about the narrative that you know facebook was uh, so influential in like turning the votes towards Trump and all the stuff about misinformation, you know, uh, changing people's behavior and all the kind of stuff. Do we, am I right that we're, we're not yet sure whether that's really the truth or is it just showing my bias towards heterodox voices that are going to be more skeptical of that? Because I remember years, a couple of years ago, listening to a Freakonomics 
episode about advertising in general and they seem to present evidence from both sides. Obviously, if you if you ask someone from a corporation who works in the advertising department, they will justify the the buckets of money that they spend on it. But they would, you know, they also spoke to some economists that were pretty skeptical about whether you know all the advertising was of justifies and, and whether it worked. But I was thinking about here about political advertising in in in, in particular. That do we know whether it actually works in terms of is, is does it swing people's votes or are you just capturing the people? that were already going to be on your side in the first place. I think it's a pretty unresolved issue and that some smart people have argued that the the darkest claims about the role of money in politics are overstated like in in general we should be skeptical of persuasion research because it's really it's really hard to persuade people and it's really hard to persuade them if it's like they're going to see five 30 second ads over the course of everything else they they do in their life um I think I haven't read this paper yet. I think it's important. I think it's one of the most important, some of the most important research, recent research on uh, persuasion. But Joshua Kala and David Brockman in the States, two really good young political scientists, they paid some Fox News viewers to watch MSNBC instead. And my sense is they found that like after watching a lot of MSNBC, their views on certain issues appear to have changed significantly. So that's an unusual setting. And I think it was a real investment of, of time and money. But I think the truth of the matter is like it, it's really hard to know exactly which sorts of persuasion work, and that in the the the, the Russia gate, the Russia stuff. Um, I think what would often happen is someone would report like, you know, they unleashed twenty thousand, the Russians unleashed twenty thousand bots on Twitter and Facebook, but not really put that in proper context because like. You know, sometimes Russia would start a Facebook group like uh, Asians for Trump or whatever, and it would have a grand total of 15 members and 12 posts. And I think a lot of the reporting on that, there's a little bit of a moral panic uh, that the reason Trump was elected was because of that rather than for a lot of other more basic reasons. And I think people overstated the influence of that campaign because I don't I'm not sure the Russians are that good or sophisticated about it. I think a lot of their efforts didn't catch on. Um, I just threw a lot at you, but I think the point is. We don't really know, and I think there's a tendency to overstate the impact of political advertising and, uh, you know, online trolling and stuff. Yeah, no, yeah, that's what I'd sort of seen. Like, it was similar, just uh, just to uh, close up here, similar to the stuff about how, um, on the right specifically, there's all the narrative about how, you know, university is turning people liberal. But as far as I'm aware, the research doesn't really bear that out. People's put, uni- The experience of university itself doesn't seem to have that much of an effect on people's uh, political ideology. So maybe there needs to be another story there, you know, but yeah. I think, <laughs> I think people, I think liberal, I mean, this is also tied up in class, but I think a lot of liberal people self-select into university or into certain fields. And my sense isn't that college students arrive. I mean, this is just more um, anecdotal. I don't think college students arrive in college ready to just accept as the gospel anything professors say. I think the relationship's more complicated and there's, Push and pull. But yeah, I think that's another area where I'm not sure there's that big a causal effect of um, college on your politics. If there was, I would expect it would come more from putting you into social contact with a lot of other liberals. That might reinforce stuff, but I don't think it's like you're being indoctrinated into it, or at least I'd be skeptical of that. Yeah, no, I, don't remember, no, I just wanted to find that. Thanks, man. Thank you for the call. Uh, Joshua, what is up? Oh, before I get to Joshua, one other interesting example of that is they think. Um, 
Alcoholics Anonymous comes across as weird to people like me. Like it used to be pretty gaudy. It comes across as a little cultish. My understanding of the research is that it seems to work. It doesn't work because of like what they tell you to say or think. It works because it puts you into social contact with other people trying to stay abstinent. So a lot of like persuasion and behavior stuff really I think often comes down to who is in your immediate social network. I think that's like one of the most powerful forces there is or, or that's what researchers think at the moment. Joshua, go ahead. Hey Jesse, Hello. Uh, good choice, Beth. Say, yep. uh, say again. I you cut out for a sec. Said good choice to you. Oh, good choice. Thank you. Um, real quick, I guess, kind of my question. I I was in total agreement with you on your summary of the journey of Elon, accurately pointing out that there's probably disproportionate pile on uh, from left leaning media outlets, and that um, you know Elon. Uh, going to the right makes kind of no sense in the uh, the area that they are the party of compassion. But it seems to me that this is more the onus, the burden is on the Democratic Party, the Democratic institution for failing to nurture and to capture him than it is a failure by Elon. Like, it seems to me that we're blaming Elon for this when we had an opportunity to grab someone who has a massive voice, who has a huge say on young demographics and a huge say on probably a lot of undecided voters. And a lot of the Democratic Party seem to treat him as a toxic, unpredictable entity, which he can be. But instead of, uh, you know, uh, trying to uh, grab him and pull him over to their side, they pushed him away. And it seems like that's the story of this is more a failure of the Democratic Party. I think it's complicated. I mean, the part I definitely agree with is uh, not trying to convince people and looking for excuses to yell at people or exclude them rather than exclusives to bring them into your coalition. I think Elon has like a bit of a cult following online. I'm not sure that many undecided voters take their cues from him. I would certainly hope not. But, um, you know, and it also it could be that the Democratic Party and Elon Musk have have differing conflicting goals, which I would I would think they would. Like he's a powerful billionaire and in many ways the Democrats want to rein in billionaires and you know they might want Twitter regulated in certain ways. I'm not saying I'm in favor of that. I'm just saying they're not necessarily natural allies. But on the broader point, I think there's a big problem in a lot of progressive movements now where like the default position is someone is suspect and maybe morally tainted and you should yell at them and educate them and, and I think it's a really nasty and self-defeating tendency. I'm not sure it exists in like the Democratic base. I mean, I always go back just to the fact that it was Joe Biden who who won the Democratic nomination and, and not by a small margin. And I don't think he really, I think he is the sort of, whatever you think of his policies, he's like the grandfatherly, let's all try to get along, work across the aisle guy. So I, I, I think there's a lot of Democrats who are not judgmental in that way. It's just the ones who are most salient, the media figures, the journalists, the activists who, who really do come across like jerks, which certainly doesn't help. I agreed, but it does seem that I know that Biden and the White House administration and just the general party establishment has taken swings back. And, you know, to be fair, Elon's, you know, taken a few shots across the bow of the Democratic Party. But a lot of things that he's gotten in trouble with the Democrats for are things that you've gotten in trouble for. And a lot of, you know, again, the, the reoccurring theme here is people who consider themselves liberal and traditionally want to align themselves with the Democratic Party and 
you know, your average uh, silent uh, majority uh, person on the Democratic side probably feels very similarly aligned. Um, and yet it seems like a failure that we're letting, you know, kind of the, the progressive side of things dictate. And I, I guess you could say that the Democratic Party wants to be critical of billionaires, but they seem to be very okay with the Tim Cooks and everyone likes to Holland Zuckerberg, yeah. but, you know, they're all happy to take his money. So it seems like if you play the right game, they are okay with. Yeah, I, I overstated that. I'm just saying in terms of the idea that the Democrats should be like courting Elon Musk or their natural allies, they might have conflicting incentives. Of course, the Democrats are uh, in. I was just having a conversation with a friend who works in politics about this, but in certain ways they are like the Republicans, a, a party for billionaires and they billionaires are influential within the party. But uh, yeah, it's hard to argue with that. Okay, terrific. Awesome. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Joshua. I appreciate it. Klaus, what is up? Oh, Patrick. Wait. No, Klaus. I might excuse something. Patrick, you're next. Klaus, what's up? Oh, hey. Hey. Can you hear me? I can. Cool. Um, There was this Substack blog called The Upheaval. I don't know if you saw it, but it had like these 20 reasons why it thought the current cultural moment, wokeness, whatever you want to call it, was not going away and why it was here to stay. And I know I recently heard an interview with Jonathan Chait on how he thinks it is weakening and it is attenuating. And I'm just wondering if you, from what you see from back channel journalist discussions, whatever, is your view, you know, that this stuff seems to be last, it's going to last a while or that it does seem to be waning. Um, I just, I think it depends on like what, corner of the world you're talking about i think in journalism it's getting better the same friend i was just talking about politics who's in like the ngo world says that it's increasingly the case in dc that ngo the heads of ngos are becoming less and less scared of their staffers which was literally a problem for a while like terrified of their 20 something staffers but they're realizing they need to stand up to them um i see a lot of reason for hope and improvement i I think in journalism it's like it's funny i'm really just um reciting a conversation I had not not an hour and a half ago. Uh, within journalism, outlets are realizing they cannot only write for like the 10% most educated and woke part of the population. So, you know, when the Times hires John McWhorter or puts Michael Powell on the free speech beat or when the Washington Post starts covering the tra- uh, youth transgender stuff in a better way, like the Times have done too, I see a lot of reason for hope. Um I also I just I just don't like the I don't like treating whatever's going on as like this totalizing monolithic thing wokeness that will either wax or wane. I, I just think it's like a million different things. And I think some corners of culture, like young adult fiction, is probably not getting better. And medievalist Twitter is probably not getting better. Some have been are just having sort of moral panics that might last a while. But in a lot of the biggest spaces I, I honestly see some reason to hope. Um I'd seen that that substack circulating. I have not read it yet. Maybe I should yeah, I mean, I you know, I hesitate to use the term like wokeness because I agree, ninety nine percent of my life is completely unaffected by it. But yeah. you know, it, it is still toxic and and it does hurt institutions. So it's it's definitely not totalitarian, but it's not nothing either. And just my kind of anecdotal evidence of my of people I know, which may or may not represent much of anything, but you know, my friends are like a lot of Sanders voting liberals. And I just see a lot more jokes at the expense of this sort of woke stuff than I yeah. might have a year or two ago. 
Well, for me, it's it's people like my friend and and other folks I know in like you know I have a lot of friends who do 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 goody NGO stuff, um, academia. People I know who are just like solid liberals or lefties who have not previously been involved in culture war fights have, have like come to me pretty consistently and been like, yeah, there's some weird shit going on in my organization, especially among the younger people. And they, they don't like it. Um, you know, there's still people who will not speak up or will claim it's a good thing or that the kids know it, like just know better than us. But I, I think there's a widespread acknowledgement that the Trump years caused some of these moral panics and that they're, they're not good for the ongoing health and success of liberal institutions. Yeah, I think there is one part that I don't see waning, though. And I think to some extent, corporations do this not because Exxon cares about the LGBT, but because they want to avoid um, discrimination lawsuits. So I, that part of like the corporate virtue signaling, I don't see going away because it's just really a cynical thing to avoid lawsuits. You mean you mean like the, the DEI stuff? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think when... <laughs> When people realize that some of these trainings actually exacerbate intergroup tensions and might themselves not be entirely legal, some of the worst ones, uh, not all of them, um, I, I think that stuff will calm down too. But yeah, that might take a while because a lot of like HR types seem to think this is the way to avoid lawsuits, like you're saying, and have a better, more inclusive workplace. When I've just I've seen no evidence to suggest the cutting edge trainings actually accomplish those goals, and I think they, um, you know, often do the opposite. Yeah, and I think most of these trainings are not Robin D'Angelo type stuff. I've never been in one of those. Any sort of DEI training I've been has been these like passive videos you have to click through that you can kind of do in the background while doing other work. Yeah. So it's not something that actually affects you, and it just seems it's just kind of low effort stuff to avoid lawsuits. Yeah, which is like I, I'm not as worried about that stuff versus the more radical stuff. There's been silly diversity trainings forever, and if it's just like telling you how not to break the law, whatever, that's fine. Yeah, and there's also ones that tell you not to bribe, and it, it, yeah, I mean that's that's such a stupid. So I don't think it's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I appreciate the call. All right, thank you, Patrick. What is up? Hey Jesse, happy Friday. Happy Friday. So on your thoughts about uh, Elon Musk and the whole Democrats no longer being the party of kindness, I will say that a uh, canner that I heard that was going around a little bit after um, kind of BLM stuff, uh, but right up it through kind of more recent stuff was that uh, Democrats or the left kind of were in the mode of uh, punishing heretics, whereas the rights were the right was accepting converts and I don't necessarily know if I believe this true. I think I would maybe rephrase it as uh, in places of power, uh, the establishment punishes people uh, that would speak heresies against uh, their mission, whereas uh, their opponents seek anyone who they can get to kind of challenge it. So it really just kind of depends upon the situation of what you're in. Yeah, so I think um, the right will accept heretics if it's like Elon Musk saying he's tired of wokeness and he wants to hang out with conservatives. Of course, of course, he'll accept that. I don't think the right accepts heretics or the portion of the right that's ascended in the Republican Party will accept heretics with regard to whether Trump won the election. I mean, or or supporting Trump more broadly. So you saw some movement of people uh, like David French or or Bill Kristol toward writing more for center left publications or, or having a bigger presence in that world. Because they felt like they couldn't, 
you know, be a part of the right anymore. Or sometimes they started rival publications. So, I, you know, I think you're right to a certain extent, but I think it's just so context dependent about which her, her, heretics are accepted by which group and why. You actually read my mind a little bit about a second point I was going to ask you about. Bill Crystal in particular is moving uh, center left, and it just feels so skeevy to me because I have memory and I remember everything that he kind of did. And it seems like he's almost getting a pass, where yeah. I think a lot of people who have made kind of minor mistakes on the left uh, are more kind of pilloried, where it's just like, we're really going to let the f- literal fox into the hen house? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a question of, of what accountability means. And, and if someone was really wrong about something as bad as the Iraq war, does that mean what should their role be in public? I think these questions are complicated, but I'm with you. The point is people who have done far less damage than Bill Crystal are treated as like radioactive. Like they can't take any part in progressive politics, which tells you something very messed up is going on. I think what it comes down to is like just a totalizing focus on Trump and like oh. – if you're if you're really loud um, and and ostentatious in your hatred of Trump, a lot of other stuff can be excused. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. I just feels bad to say, but like I'm really interesting to see what the world will look like post Trump and how kind of the parties basically merge and change to react once that kind of bellwether is gone from the system. Yep. Yeah, I'm with you. It's going to, uh, I think things will mostly just get stupider. That's my prediction, but it'll be interesting to see. Oh, uh, stupider. That's always a good thing. Exactly. Uh, thank you for the call, Patrick. Hi. Scott, what is up? Hey, Jesse. Uh, thanks for taking my of call. Of course. Um, firstly, on Elon Musk, my take is that he is a complete grifter who only cares about one thing, and that's Elon Musk. He's a guy who, you know, bought the title of founder for Tesla to get the prestige that comes with that company and who paid for this, you know, for this woman's silence out of the SpaceX budget. Um, I think that he he's more like Edison than he is like Tesla. He buys, (laughs) buys a lot of patents and says, you know, it's like that picture. I don't know if you've seen the meme of the guy who, you know, it's a stick figures. One person says, I made this for you. And then the person leaves and they're like, I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know much about uh, must must background, but that I've, I've heard versions of this from other people. So my, my question though, is um, I've asked this on a couple of call-in shows and just wondered what your thoughts on it were on. Why do you think that, there isn't the same sort of left-wing violence as there is right-wing violence. Like there is, um, you know, a lot of mass shootings that are racially motivated, that are targeted at, you know, minority groups and immigrants, et cetera. But there isn't the same sort of violent attacks from the left. You know, there aren't people going and and shooting up weapons companies or, or, you know, banks or, you know, oil companies, there are like ecological groups that take, you know, violent action, but they're, they're targeted more towards infrastructure than they are towards, you know, human, human lives. Yeah. Um, just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, 
Okay, so there, there, I think there's definitely, in 2020 especially, there was definitely some rioting and looting that you could consider left-wing violence, although it was often just like really disorganized and self-sabotaging, um, impulsive stuff. I, I think basically the far right in the U.S. is much better organized and, and goes back further than the far left. Like my understanding is in the 60s and 70s, the more radical factions of the left really destroyed themselves in various ways, and they're just like hasn't been sort of the infrastructure you need to like if you were going to plot terror attacks and assassinations and you know for a while there were bombs going off every day in the states although i think they usually didn't kill anyone there were um some political assassinations on both sides but i I think there's always going to be this core of you know really resentful white people who feel like their country's been taken from them and and white supremacy in the u.s and i think sometimes there's been some exaggeration of that. I, I, I think there's always going to be some attacks. I'm Jewish. I was obviously horrified by like the attack in Pittsburgh, but I, I think we actually have a pretty peaceful country by world historical standards. And I think white right wing terrorism is just something we're always going to have to grapple with. And there's always going to be some of it because there is this, this strain of just of resentful people who see the country changing and hate that. Um, now, it's hard to talk about this in an intelligent way. And a lot of people treat, for example, the one six protests as identical to white supremacy protests. And I, I think it's a little more complicated than that. I think a lot of people got roped into the Trump conspiracy theories who aren't outright white supremacists. They're just confused and ignorant, but um, yeah, I'm rambling a little, but that would, that would be my best attempt to give you an answer like off the dome. Does that make approximate sense to you? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think it's fair. I, I agree with you that that one six is is different than than you know the Charlottesville rally. You know, there there were people there in tactical gear with weapons and and you know handcuffs that were there too. You know, with a mission, but I think the vast majority of them were swept up in the moment and and um. But it was a crazy time. Watching Unbelievably crazy. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, thank you for the call, Scott. That was a good question. Yeah, thank you. Hope I did it justice. Uh, Shauna, what's up? Hey, good afternoon, Jesse. I had a question of what you think about reading the tea leaves of the change in, quote, wokeism and how it might be affected if we have a recession or specifically in the more left-leaning tech sector where um, – they're getting hit the hardest with their stocks and um, sort of extrapolating outside of the culture wars and getting down to the bottom line, so to speak, financially, if that will change culture. You mean, uh, will people have different priorities or sort of less (laughs) radical chic beliefs if they're economically affected? Sense of, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of gnashing of teeth where we, we talk about wokeism or changing cultures within corporations. And um, some of that is just sort of sp- like spinning plates and uh, distraction. Um, whereas uh, the boring part of my brain says, well, what are the economics of this? Like if, if we're talking about a certain age group, in a company well in that if they're in their late 20s they haven't been part of a recession um in the workplace most likely so they don't know what it's like 
to have to make choices of uh, letting people go, keeping the lights on, the very basics. If you are a highly leveraged company, it's... You're yeah. cutting out a little bit, but um, I, I do think this is, yeah, I think there's, um, I mean, obviously as people get older and have more responsibilities, their politics change and they, and they get less radical. I think we haven't fully grappled with like how the effect of the Great Recession um, affected some young people's political views, because I, I think a lot of people my age, but mostly younger now, like really just don't feel like they've gotten a fair shake and they feel like their parents and their grandparents, like if they played by the rules and got a college degree and got a job, they'd, they'd have a shot at the good life and at like material prosperity. And I think that's less and less the case and that that has had an effect on politics, although maybe it's hard to pin down. And it doesn't mean people respond rationally to that stuff or in an adaptive way, but um I think that's just part of the story that has yet to be fully understood. But then, yeah, I, I, the short answer is I don't, I don't even want to speculate because I'm not sure. Like what happens to someone who's like a, in sort of the radical chic camp when they actually become a business person or when they deal with like real financial insecurity? I can sort of see that going in different ways. Okay, let me rephrase the question. Sorry, I meant from the corporation standpoint. Um, so, for example, if you right now can afford to spend X number of dollars in bringing in certain uh, consultants um, and specialized DEI consulting versus the standard um, diversity click through training that many of us have been through and suddenly you don't have that that additional income, you don't have the cash flow to pay for that. Um, I'll give you an example. So Netflix you know, suddenly Netflix stock prices falls, you know, more than 30%. And at the same time, uh, within the same two-week time span, they let their their employees know, if you don't like our creative direction, you have the opportunity to leave. That's the standpoint. That's what I'm talking about. When you are leading a company and you no longer have the quote-unquote excesses or options or opportunities that you have because you have severely reduced cash flow, do you suddenly start pushing back on your employees? Um, yeah, I just think there's like so many other effects. Uh, you know, a situation like Netflix, like they're laying off a bunch of people. I, I just, I don't know. I, I, I think for companies that think they need diversity trainings for legal purposes, they're going to hold on to them. But yeah, they probably have less money for like super in-depth ones or, or fancy ones. But um, yeah, I just, I, I I don't see it having a huge impact on that versus like the layoffs and stuff like that, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, layoffs definitely, it just adds a, a heightened sense of insecurity for sure. I'm just interested. I'll be interested to see what companies pushed back or if they feel um, if they are going to push back more on their employees and their and their relationship with their employees if they are threatened more economically now due to outside influences and market influences. So I'll be yeah, curious. It's a good right, question. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks, Shana. Justin's going to have to be the last call, but Zoe and Rye, if you um, – the next time either of you shows up in one of these, I'll bump you to the front because I feel bad I won't be able to get to you, but I will I will bump you to the front for the next one. Justin, what's up? Hey, Jesse. Hopefully you can hear me okay. I can. 
Great, thanks. And uh, I love listening to these shows because there's such a range of views from the different people in yourself. Uh, it's always great. I always wish I was in a room with all you guys having a beer and we could just go into everything, but I know that's not necessarily possible. Uh, so I guess thank you. Thank you for listening. Uh, yeah, of course. Um, so uh, about the, this last bit and uh, a, a couple of callers ago um, about corp trainings, um, you know, I've been through that standard click through you know, here, here's the cover your ass training that you get, which is, I think, fairly old school at this point. I think pretty common for any decently sized org. Um, but I do have to, like, kind of agree with a couple of things from the very last caller um, where she mentioned that, uh, you know, there does seem to be some excesses that companies are needing to let go of uh, now that they're being held more to the financial fire, let's say. And um, with the Netflix one, those layoffs that they had, it was a relatively small number of layoffs. And from what we can tell about them, um, they do seem to be very targeted to basically people who are against, you know, the creative direction, as their statement said. Um, so I, uh, I I do think that for Netflix in particular, there there's reason to believe that that was a bigger motivation rather than, a, you know, we're just cutting across the board indiscriminately. I think there, there was... Uh, some problematic people, let's say, to use the language. That's fair. And, and uh, when it comes to um, just kind of the the corporate training in general uh, and, and the financial motivations, um, I think a thing that people aren't don't really realize is that there is financial motivation to become more more to push more into this ESG direction. For example, not just have the cover your ass training, but for example, the company I work for, based out of California tech company um, that, you know, recently we brought in an ESG like diversity officer of some for some, some kind, I believe it's at the director level. And um, while this hasn't shown itself, it's clear effects in the business yet. I'm pretty sure that these trainings that we were getting before, which were all of those old school trainings, the cover your ass ones are going to start to turn into something a bit different, you know, I think I'm going to be asked to put my pronouns in my email signatures, for example, uh, because that this person's already doing that. Um, I'm sure that I'm going to have, you know, racial sensitivity training, not just about what not to say, but hey, here's how you should be thinking about and towards other races and sexes and genders and, you know, all of the intersectional categories. And gotcha. the, the reasoning for this is I don't think just... Um, to extend the cover your ass portion of things, um, there's uh, from the big financiers in America, especially, um, they kind of say like, if you don't have these efforts inside of your company to a specific level, we won't deal with you financially in some terms. And I believe that is what actually is motivating uh, my company in particular. That we stayed out of a lot of the craziness of 2020 and and, and into 2021. Uh, but I think as we're starting to get more corporate, uh, let's say, uh, and they want to chase kind of, you know, the woke capital, it, it's kind of being pushed down upon the company from the people who would have influence over them from outside in the financial world. And, and I think that's a big motivator for especially large groups. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I can't say I know a huge amount about that, but I do think there's probably some like behind the scenes pressure exerted to get companies to um, act in a certain way. So I, I probably just need to look more into that, to be honest. 
I don't think it's behind the scenes. Even. I think these companies right are the fairly open about it, actually. Um, I'm, I'm not saying it's uh, conspiratorial. I'm just saying my understanding is like there are actual motivations out there or motivators. Um, and and I, I want to get to Musk and I'm going to get go through the caller before the last one, because, again, I wish I could respond to everything I heard today. Um, but uh, Musk, he he founded PayPal with the idea of, you know, democratizing payment on the internet, allowing people to not have to, you know, have their own set up with uh, MasterCard or Visa or whatever. That was difficult. Um, it, and then he moved into a, a bunch of these other endeavors, which I'm sure were very self-aggrandizing. Um, but, you know, I think he comes from the shitlord era of the internet, which I very much feel, um, you know, let's let's talk about everything. Let's have it all out there. In you know the the mid two thousands, there was a big push, like culturally, which has been completely forgotten about. Uh, of you know, let's democratize the information. Information should be free. And you know, I don't believe that in, in its absolute, but you know, that seems to be the direction he is going and wants to go with things like Twitter, which at one point was you know where the free speech wing of the free speech party. And uh, it seems like he wants to bring that kind of ethos back. So I, I don't feel that this push is a hundred percent cynical on, uh, on Musk's part, you know? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, he, he definitely is a part of shitlord culture and it's just so it's weird watching that collide with sort of corporate culture. And I, I, you know, if you're a Twitter employee or someone worried about the um, acquisition, he's just shitlord culture or not. He's just handling this in such a weird way uh so it, it's it's definitely going to continue to be something to watch yeah and it, it has been a show and the response to him has been amazing uh i will say that th those two accusations that uh that were referenced you know him exposing himself on the plane to some lady and um uh the surrounding circumstances of the tesla founding uh, and him just trying to buy it for his own name um, I think if you look deeper at either of those stories, you'll see that that's not set in stone in terms of that's what we should take away from those narratives. And I don't want to dive into it now. I don't want to litigate that. But um, I would suggest to that caller that, you know, I, I would look a little bit deeper at those. Fair enough. Thank you for the call, Justin. Thank you, Jesse. All right. Sorry, Zoe and Rye. Like I said, uh, if you show up to an upcoming room, I'll bump you to the front. Uh, I have emailed myself to remind myself. But uh, for everyone else, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Uh, I would just ask for you to spread the word if you like the show, if you like what I'm doing here. And, of course, check out my other uh, my properties, my uh, newsletter, jessesingle.substack.com, and blotterimporter.org for the podcast. Uh, there's a lot more about uh, Elon Musk on the next episode, as well as the Buffalo shooting, as well as the apparent death of the podcast reply all. So uh, a lot coming out that I'm excited about. And thank you guys again for tuning in. Farewell. <laughs>